Ink and Quill illuminates on literature, culture and beyond. That's cool, isn't it? Listen to the sound of some incredible readings. The Great Wall story is the story of the relationship. The imagery in China is so strong. It's a book about the human story. Ink and Quill. Something provoking. We have to think like a queen. Something thoughtful. History's fantasy, really. Something fun. See some naughty people trying to steal panda cubs. All here on Ink and Quill. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors, this is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. In China, if you asked a random pedestrian about what the hardest language to learn is, I bet a great number of them would proudly point out that Chinese outplays the rest. Well, the answer may sound a little bit like a nationalistic bombast. But in fact, linguistic-wise, there is some truth to this patriotic sentiment. According to American linguist David Moser, Chinese language has enjoyed an Everest-like status to native English speakers due to its complex writing system and distinctive tone patterns. Yet, Swedish sinologist Cecilia Lindqvist is not afraid to tear down the formidable Great Wall of the Chinese language. As the author of the internationally acclaimed book, China, Empire of Living Symbols, she traces the development of Chinese writing signs and helps readers to memorize those once obscure characters. Meanwhile, her other book, Qing, effortlessly bridges the moderns with a 3,000-year-old Chinese musical instrument. In 2016, this versatile scholar received the Special Book Award of China, the country's top literary prize bestowed to foreign writers. In today's Ink and Quill, let's follow Zhang Wan to learn Professor Lindkovist's story. Born in the mid-19th century, Sven Hedin was one of the world's most famous geographers and topographers. After trekking across parts of Asia that were once labeled terra incognita, this courageous pathfinder left us some of the most comprehensive accounts of northwest China. In his memoir, the Swedish explorer confessed that his whole life was motivated by something that breaks down all obstacles and refuses to recognize the impossible. Almost half a century later, it was the same irresistible wanderlust that drove Haddon's fellow countrywoman Cecilia Lindquist set herself onto a similar journey in China. After having graduated from high school, I enrolled at the Stockholm University, and during the following eight years, I studied history of literature, history of the art, general history, linguistics. But then I had become 29 years old. And suddenly I realized that everything I had studied was the European art, European history, not one world about the rest of the world. So during my last year at the University of Stockholm, I followed classes in classical Chinese. It was so fascinating. He explained the characters and he uh, explained the history behind, and I thought, China the world's oldest continuous culture, remarkable arts, philosophy, everything. I must go there. And so I went. 
born in Sweden in 1932, Cecilia Lindqvist was a student of Bernhard Kellgren, one of the greatest sinologists in the 20th century. Under his influence, she had become increasingly interested in the far-off Middle Kingdom. Finally, in 1961, her opportunity came, as her then-husband was sent to the Swedish embassy to China. The young woman decided to come along to perfect her Chinese. Yet, what Cecilia had experienced was out of phase with her expectation. When I arrived in Beijing for the first time, I was put up at the Xinjiang Hotel, and I walked happily around in the center of the Beijing. I saw Wang Fujing. I went to the Forbidden City. I was greatly overwhelmed by the beauty of this magnificent palace. Then I was transferred to Peking University. And my impression rapidly changed: dirty, cold, extremely bad food, extremely bad education, and worst of all was all the teachers and officials. They were afraid of doing something wrong that would make them lose their job and be expelled to the countryside. The oppression was severe. In her later work, Another World, Cecilia vividly documented in details her first encounter with China. The author admits that before she came, she didn't know much about the country, let alone its harsh political climate and economic distress in the early 1960s. The grim poverty situation in the country at that time shocked her to the core. The language classes, which were awash with daily repetition of mechanical steps and dogmatic slogans, also disappointed the Swede to no end. By traveling around China, she was desperate to get away from the dullness of the university life. Yet, on the verge of planning to leave, it was music that altered everything. The life-changing music is not produced by piano, which Cecilia Lindqvist has been playing since the age of five, nor the medieval lute that she got her hands on in the mid-twenties. In Beijing, she found peace and haven in an ancient Chinese musical instrument called qin, which would later become her lifelong passion and companion. And when I was going to China. And the director heard, "Oh, you are going to China. Then you must learn to play some instrument. I'll give a letter of recommendation to you." And、uh, with that letter in Moscow, I went to old, very old、um, master who knew very quite a lot about Chinese music. I thought I would play the pipa、mm. because it looks like the lute that I had been playing. But he said, "No." You should, and that's an instrument for, for entertainment. You should play the guoqin, and so he wrote a letter of introduction for me to the small institute that had just been in, inaugurated, guoqin yanjuhui, and they had got money to study this old instrument, three, more than three thousand years old, and、uh, seven strings of silk. Absolutely beautiful sound. A 
member of the zither family, the seven-stringed plucked guqin, or qin for short, is probably China's most classical and revered musical instrument. Legend has it that the instrument was invented by Fu Xi, god of creation and the first of emperor in Chinese mythology. With a clear, elegant, and metallic sound, guqin has been commonly viewed as the essence of Chinese music and high culture. So, in ancient times, playing guqin was a high-desired skill for literati and elites. From Confucius, China's most important philosopher, to Ji Kang, a famous libertine in the 3rd century, many historical figures had a special liking to guqin. However, by the early 20th century, lots of ancient repertoire had already been lost throughout the time. After the establishment of the People's Republic of China, in order to preserve this traditional art, the Chinese Guqin Research Institute was set up in a small courtyard in Beijing. Its founding members include Zhao Fuxi, the vice chairman of the National Musical Association, and Pu Xuezhai, cousin of China's last emperor, Pu Yi. Armed herself with nothing but a recommendation letter and a full-hearted curiosity, Cecilia Linkovist ventured into that courtyard. She became the only student of those Guqin masters in the 1960s. And I came to this small institute with 11 of the most famous scholars and musicians playing Guqin at that time, Guan Pinghu, who was the foremost one, Wu Jingyue, and so on. Uh, all of them excellent musicians, and they admitted me to come there to be their students. And I, I'm the only one, only student they've ever had. No Chinese students, no other foreign students. And they took so well, well care of me. I mean, they knew everything, everything that I wanted to ask about. And they told me all the stories about the people who had played the tin, about the stories behind the songs and so on. They could start talking about for long music, of course, but also literature, art, architecture, philosophy. And if they couldn't answer my questions, they arranged for me to some experts in the field. They are the most cultured person I ever met in my life. And so from the very harsh environment at the Beidar, I found this quite living, old, elite culture of the Guqin. Years later, in one of her public speeches, Cecilia admitted that without those two years at the Guqin Research Institute, she would have left China a long time ago. In the foreword of her book, Qin, she wrote that, if you approach the music of the Qin in a very simple way, you will meet not only a unique and captivating music, you will also come close to the whole of ancient classical Chinese culture. So it is. For Cecilia, it was the experience of learning Gu Qin that set up the foundation of her profound interest in China. In 1962, Cecilia headed back home since her husband's contract with the Swedish embassy had come to an end. But before she left, she received two precious gifts from her Guqin teachers, a hundred-year-old instrument and a tape of recordings. Yet for the next decade, China was not the main focus in Cecilia's life. 
she and her family traveled around the world until the 1970s. Back in Sweden, she became a high school teacher and also worked as a freelancer at Swedish Television on their China-related programs. There was a great laughter in the teachers' room, and they said, <laughs> "Have you heard this? Eighteen students here in the first grade would like to learn Chinese. How could we find a teacher for them? They are just crazy." But I went to direct of the school. And I asked if I might get the permission to give a small course of Chinese after school, and I got the permission. And during the coming year, I had these 18 students met them every Monday after school, and during two hours, I tried to introduce them to the Chinese writing. And when that year ended, I wrote to the Minister of Education and Culture and asked if I could be allowed to start. Regular classes in Chinese, and after two weeks, after two weeks, I got re the reply: "Please go forward. This is magnificent." And so I did. However, Cecilia Lindquist did not follow the traditional method of teaching Chinese characters, which emphasizes the importance of sheer rote memorization. She got inspired by her own teacher, Bernhard Kellgren. Who taught Chinese characters by introducing their original pictorial forms and how those forms changed throughout the time? I wanted to tell them everything I could about Chinese culture, also, and the background of the character, why they looked the way they did, and all about Chinese life. Chinese language is—it's very difficult to learn, but if you get proper explanations of the old forms on the oracle bones from the Shang Dynasty. And the bronze script from the Zhou Dynasty—it becomes much more easy and much more interesting. Since her teaching materials around the time were limited, Cecilia Lindquist dug into dictionaries and archaeological books. From the ancient drawings, pictures, and inscriptions, she not only discovered the etymologies of Chinese characters, but also learned how their respective shapes and concepts mirror the Chinese history and ideology. In order to facilitate her students' studies, from 1973, she brought them to China for field trips, so as to help them get a sense of the subject. I tried in my teaching not just to learn them the stroke order, the way to hold the brush, and so on, but as much as I could about the living life of Chinese, Chinese history, everything that might be helpful for them to understand the different characters or remember them. So I began to write, write down all the explanations I thought would be of help for the students. And after some 15 years, the heaps of paper with these explanations grew higher and higher. I realized this might might become an interesting book for everybody interested in Chinese culture and language. And it is published in 1989. And to my astonishment, it became a great success. Not only in Sweden, since then, been published in fourteen languages. Cecilia's publication, China Empire of Living Symbols, is an enlightening and insightful volume full of common touch. Unlike a dictionary, the author only introduces some two hundred Chinese characters. Some of them relate to the natural environment, while some deal with the daily life of ancient Chinese people. Thanks to Cecilia's warm and refined words, those seemingly peculiar-looking state letters come to life and unlock those fantastic stories that they have long concealed.
For example, Yu, the Chinese word of rain, looks like a combination of a cloud and four raindrops. Zi, meaning self in Chinese, looks like the shape of a nose because Chinese people point to their noses when they talk about themselves. Approachable, detailed, and beautifully written, China Empire of Living Symbols won the August Prize, one of the most prestigious literary awards in Sweden. Recognized by British historian Michael Wood as one of the ten best books on China, its Chinese edition was chosen in 2015 as one of the most beautifully written books of the year. Quite often, when I come to China, when I go around in the streets, say hello, oh. You are the one who induced me to come here. I've read your book, Empire of the Written Language, and so I decided I must go to China and study Chinese. And so many, many Swedes have gone to China because of the, the interest that my books rose in them, and also some few of the professors in here in Sweden and also in, both in London and the United States are my former students. I feel very proud of having these lovely students. They all of them keep contact with me. Some of them, and I mean, more than 50 years old now, and、uh, you know, continuing my work in a way that makes me very happy. Thanks to the efforts of Cecilia Lindqvist, now Chinese is admitted into the Swedish syllabus. It has become one of the foreign languages that every high school teacher over Sweden chooses to teach. But guqin, the musical instrument that once brought her so much joy during her first two years in China, remains the scholar's greatest passion. Right after the release of her book on Chinese characters, she immediately buckled down to the new book, qin. When I began to write my book about guqin, I thought there was nobody playing it, no student at the academy. So when I began to write, my plan was I would collect everything that. Can be some kind of, a, of a inspiration for people coming later, and they can see how to treat the strings, how to treat the upper layer of the, the instrument, who were the Taiwanese, and so on. Everything connected with it. I wanted to collect it and have it in my book for the coming generations, when somebody maybe in the future. Would like to learn something about this old instrument. Just like her first book on China, Cecilia had crafted the second one for years. In 1978, she reached out to her friend Wang Di, who taught her how to play guqin in the 60s. We had very close contact when I was writing this book, Guqin, because、uh, so much of the literature is written in in Guan, in classical Chinese. And there are so many different term, difficult terms, and she helped me tremendously. We had planned that when my book was published in Sweden, '06, I would invite her to come here to Sweden, and she would play, and I would talk about the instrument and present the poems and so on. And then, almost one year before the book was published, she died, and I cried. We had planned this during 50 years. And now she was gone. Wang's youngest daughter Deng Hong is a sophisticated guqin player, just like her mother. In 2007, Cecilia invited her to Sweden and to perform along with her Chinese colleague, who is skilled at Chinese flute, Xiao. 
gave 10 concerts there, all sold out. People were queuing outside and wanting to come in. After that, they came back only half a year later. And since 2010, we have given 45 concerts of Chin and Xiao in Sweden, in other countries here in the north. Everywhere, people are fascinated by this instrument. The sound is so mellow, so soft, and absolutely beautiful. So it's been a great success. Her book, Qin, has also become a success. Published in 2006, this non-fiction crowns its author a two-time August Prize winner, which is quite rare in Swedish history. In the book, a CD is also attached, containing the soundtracks that Cecilia's Gu Qin teacher recorded for her 40 years ago. Though the old masters passed away, their music stands the test of time. Today, Cecilia Litkovist is hailed as one of the best European sinologists of our time. Over the years, she has been constantly invited to come back to China and give lectures. Her lore of Chinese language and music is widely admired. Yet, the Swedish lady is by no means self-content, since she plans to pen down another book. This time, the book is going to be about Chinese paper cutting. I have been working on that, but now so many other things are, are coming in between, so I have to concentrate me and, and find the time to make it before my time is out. Thank you, Zhang Wan, for introducing us to the amazing life story of Swedish sinologist Cecilia Lindqvist. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget that there are always more interesting happenings in the literary world, and we will keep you posted. To learn more about us, you can follow our Facebook account, China Plus, or download our podcast from the Apple iTunes. Here is a soundtrack from the album The Sound of the Soul, which is co-produced by Cecilia Lindqvist. Hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Yang Yong. See you next week.